Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 54, the 1919 Bible Conference, part 1. Last time we finished up our discussion on the rise of historical criticism and evolution, as well as all of the changes that were happening in America and the Western Christian world, as well as the fundamentalist reaction to those things. We also introduced our Adventist amateur scientist, who was at the center of a lot of this, George McCready Price, and hopefully we will have a chance to meet Mr. Price again soon. Let's begin by reminding ourselves of the three ingredients that are simmering in our season two soup. First, you have the external pressures on the church, the evolutionary mushroom, and a dollop of historical criticism. Second, you have the internal pressures within the church, which means a younger generation is voicing doubts about traditional interpretations like the Eastern question and the daily. There were also questions over Ellen White's inspiration as a prophet, which is kind of behind all of that. After all, if books like The Great Controversy could be revised in her lifetime, if they could be changed, then how exactly is she inspired by God? The final ingredient in this soup was really a lack of ingredients, meaning that by the mid-1920s, all of the pioneers were gone. After Ellen White died, George Ida Butler passes away, Stephen Haskell passes away, and finally John Loughborough brings up the rear and is laid to rest. It's true that we haven't heard a lot from these guys lately, but they provided a sense of continuity and stability. It's difficult to measure the value of that, but it was there. I'm sure it felt lonelier to work at Apple after Steve Jobs died. The people telling Adventism's stories were less and less the people who actually lived it, and so the stories themselves began to sound more like legends. The external issues evolution and historical criticism, they didn't do much to damage the unity of the church until much later in the 20th century. The external issues, like evolution and historical criticism, didn't do much damage to the unity of the church until much later in the 20th century. That's not to say evolution and historical criticism didn't have an immediate impact on Adventists. One of the things these issues did was to intensify the atmosphere of debate. So, W.W. Prescott thought it was no big deal to change the church's interpretation of the daily in Daniel 8. To Prescott, it was just a software update. But to Prescott's opponents, do you know who else was updating their traditional beliefs? Theologically liberal churches. And these updates clearly led to getting your computer compromised by Darwinian hackers. Whatever. You know what I mean. Today, I mean, look, you can come to America and discuss the politics of democratic socialism. You can wear a Nazi pin. You can wear a pin of Lenin. You wouldn't want to do that in 1940s or 1950s America. I have the memoirs of Erwin Rommel, a German general from World War II, on my bookshelf. But if I walked around town reading that book in 1941, I might get a visit from the government. 
my neighbors might start whispering about me being a traitor. So these external issues changed the context of the debate. It is a different debate about communism, for instance, whether you have it in early 1950s McCarthy-style America or whether you have it in 2019. The context matters, and the context of these debates was souring. It was changing. It was not getting better. The whole atmosphere for theological discussion within Adventism was becoming hostile. Seemingly small issues, as Prescott considered the daily to be, were connected to the larger cultural battles going on outside the church. It reminds me of that understated line from The West Wing, where one of the characters tells another, we talk about enemies more than we used to. Naturally, a lot of the controversies after 1915 involved Ellen White in one way or another. You had people, a number of people, who popped up claiming to be her successor. They would write letters to Daniels in particular, telling him how he should be running the church, just like Ellen White used to. In time, all of those would-be prophets ran out of gas, but some were serious challenges to deal with. The most serious of these would-be prophets was probably Margaret Rowan, who built up a bit of a following. But after she eventually sort of killed one of her followers, that ended that. And so the more enduring conflict was over the future of Ellen White's writings. And that turned out to be the big fault line. After Ellen White died, her literary estate was overseen by a board of directors, right, trustees. Their first task was to finish a book she had been writing called Prophets and Kings. But after that, they were at a crossroads. Some wanted to publish everything Ellen White had written, and others, like A.G. Daniels, didn't. Possibly because some of those things that she hadn't published were letters that she had written to him that he would rather keep private. Naturally, some people were suspicious about this. Why would you not want to publish everything Ellen White wrote? What are church leaders trying to hide about Ellen White? Ben MacArthur, the Adventist historian, wrote a line that's worth interjecting here. He was talking about how people throughout Adventist history had left the church and then opposed Ellen White as well. People like Canwright, Kellogg, A.T. Jones. That's when MacArthur drops this line. Quote, Dissidents and detractors, as troubling as they were, endangered the church less than the uncritical, literalistic reading of her writings. End quote. And this is where we get to meet Claude Holmes. Hi, Claude. Claude was a Review and Herald employee who just happened to have some really strong beliefs about the Daily Controversy. You remember the Daily Controversy. It's been going on for like 10 years at this point. The controversy was about whether Daniel 8, 11, 12, and 13 referred to pagan Rome or Christian Rome. Ellen White had decades ago endorsed Uriah Smith's view but Prescott had suggested a different interpretation, and near the end of her life, Ellen White publicly stayed out of it. She said it was a minor issue, not worth getting worked up about. She wanted everyone to drop the issue and get back to work. Naturally, nobody dropped the issue, nobody got back to work, and everybody got worked up about it. Well, not everybody, but a number of people got worked up about it, including Claude Holmes, 
to Claude Holmes, defending Uriah Smith's view of the Daily wasn't as important as defending Ellen White because he thought Ellen White's reputation was at stake here. And Holmes was sure that in Ellen White's unpublished writings, there had to be some statement he could use to win this war. Maybe she had written to Prescott and told Prescott that he was wrong. And, of course, the general conference leaders like Daniels and Prescott are naturally sitting on those unpublished letters somewhere and they won't let them out. Holmes smelled a conspiracy. So it was time for Holmes to launch Operation Steal Ellen White's Writings from Under Daniels' Nose. I mean, that probably wasn't the operational name because, you know, I mean, that's a terrible operational name. Anyways, some people collect model trains, others collect stamps. Claude Holmes' hobby was collecting Ellen White's writings. He was described as an index, a human index to Ellen White's writings. If you wanted to know where a statement was, you talk to Claude Holmes and he would tell you where it is in her writings. Some have described him as the foremost expert on Ellen White in the church at this time, perhaps excepting Willie White. In 1917, while Daniels was visiting Asia, Holmes told a worker at the General Conference that Daniels had given him permission to get into the vault. Well, with Sherlock Holmes in the vault, he copied hundreds of pages of unpublished Ellen White manuscripts and got out. Sherlock Holmes, come on, you knew that joke was coming. And it is totally worth calling him Sherlock until the end of this episode. Because it wasn't the most ninja-like crime ever committed, the General Conference found out and demanded the copies that Holmes had made be returned. Well, Holmes had made copies of his copies and had given them to his friends. There were seven in all. Two of the friends returned their copies to the General Conference, Two of them admitted that they had already mixed up the things that Holmes had given them with things that they had already have and have no idea which were taken from the vault and which were their own. And then there was Holmes. And when Holmes was asked to return what he had copied to the General Conference, he just looked the General Conference straight in the face and said, no. And that, friends, is how you get yourself fired. Sherlock Holmes had specifically targeted private letters Ellen White had written to W.W. Prescott and Daniels, his two biggest opponents in this daily issue. He never did find his secret weapon to win the war. He never found the silver bullet, which he could just produce and end all controversy. But he found enough personal material to deeply embarrass Daniels publicly. It also didn't help things that Holmes's closest ally in this war was our old friend Judson S. Washburn whose racially motivated jealousy of Louis Sheaf led to some ugly letters, which we've discussed. Daniels had his moments of conflict with Ellen White. We've talked about that. But one cannot imagine Ellen White would be happy with her letters to Daniel being used as a club to crush and embarrass him. And Holmes and Washburn were just getting started. Besides the daily issue, there were plenty of other questions about Ellen White's writings going around. There were questions about whether she taught the shut door back in the 1840s, about whether you had to believe Ellen White was a prophet to be a member of the church, about whether Ellen White was really infallible, about whether she plagiarized. None of these questions have really ever gone away. And all of these questions were kind of wrapped up in what was really the biggest question of all, 
How exactly was Ellen White inspired? You may recall that the 1911 revision of the Great Controversy brought this issue to the front. If the original book was inspired, why was she changing what she had written? Why was she revising it? Why was she updating it? And you should remember, who was at the forefront in getting Ellen White to make some of those changes? W.W. Prescott. So you can see how camps had begun to form within the church, with the idea that men like Holmes and Washburn and Leon Smith, Uriah Smith's son, all those men believed that they were the true defenders of Ellen White. And they considered men like Daniels and Prescott, those church bureaucrats out there trying to undermine Ellen White. They were the enemy. Interestingly, just as a side note, Holmes, Washburn, and Daniels were all neighbors from Iowa. So really, Iowa problems. I say that camps formed, but from what I can tell, the attacks mainly came from one direction. It was the Holmes-Washburn-Smith camp that kept attacking Daniels and company. And they thrived at this for several reasons. First, because the spread of evolution and historical criticism created this conservative mood in the church, this fear of changing things. Second, because those pioneers were all dying, which also helped the conservative mood, the desire to respect the pioneers' memories by holding on to their teachings. And third, let's be honest, because it's easy to hate on our elected leaders. It's easy to blame all our problems on them. It's easy to be suspicious about their motives. So if figuring out Ellen White's role in the church as a prophet while she was living was difficult, then figuring out what to do with her after she died was just as challenging. So Adventist leaders held a meeting to talk about it. This became the famous 1919 Bible and History Teachers Conference, which most people just abbreviate as the 1919 Bible Conference. This was easily one of the most controversial meetings ever held in Adventist history, which you probably could have guessed just from all the stuff that's happened in this episode so far. The conference was a long time coming. Daniels and Prescott and others have been visiting fundamentalist conferences over the past few years as the fundamentalists reaffirmed their faith and strategized about their response to modernism. Francis M. Wilcox, editor of The Review, wrote glowingly of these prophetic conferences, as the fundamentalists called them, sometimes giving them as much space in The Review as Wilcox gave reports of general conference meetings. Wilcox had wanted such a conference for Adventists in 1913 while Ellen White lived. Indeed, the final years of her life were full of letters being sent to her to clarify some of these questions which were emerging. But her health usually wasn't up to wading into the deep waters of these questions. In any case, the First World War made it too difficult to meet, so the conference had to wait until the war was over. In fact, a bunch of conferences had to wait for the war to be over. In the first half of 1919, there was a conference for evangelists, a conference for book editors, a conference for educators, and so on and so on. The Bible and History Teachers Conference was clearly the most important conference of the year, however. The General Conference Committee itself issued the invitations to the 60-plus people who attended. Daniels and Prescott were there, of course. But what's interesting is that one-third of the people in attendance at this conference were under 40 the youngest being a 26-year-old teaching assistant at Southern Junior College. While the conference members represented some diversity of opinion, it's safe to say the General Conference did not set out to ensure equal representation of all viewpoints. 
And that's what's going to make this conference so easy to vilify. It was an invitation-only affair attended by some of the most educated elites. There was plenty of disagreement at the conference in reality, but the most radical populists like Holmes and Washburn weren't invited. I call Holmes and Washburn populists because of the nature of their criticism of the conference. One of their targets was E.F. Albertsworth, only the third Adventist ever to earn a Ph.D., and the only one with a doctorate in history. Washburn claimed that Albertsworth was asked about what was said during the conference, and that Albertsworth had said the information was secret. Washburn also said that Albertsworth had declared that the conference was for the benefit of, quote, the leading ministers and the educational leaders and not for the ordinary ministers or workers or the common people, end quote. Oh, a secret conference with information only for the leaders of the church and not for the common people. Descriptions like this were designed to incite anger among the common people of the church against their leaders. For a supposedly secret conference, however, the ideas discussed at the 1919 Bible Conference were some of the worst-kept secrets ever, probably because it wasn't actually a secret conference. The purpose of the conference was to discuss many of the questions that were floating around Adventism, questions that were not a secret. The fact that the General Conference chose to confine the discussion to church leaders led people like Holmes to feel like Daniels was sending the kids to bed so the adults could talk. For sure, pastors and teachers and administrators had a huge stake in the answers to these questions. They needed to know what to tell their students and their church members. But the exclusive nature of the conference and the fact that the records of the discussion were sealed in the general conference vault for the next 50 years ignored the fact that all Adventists had a stake in this discussion. Now, from the outside, it seemed like the leaders discussed the most controversial and important questions in the church, questions which would chart the course for the denomination in the post-Ellen White world. And when the teachers and pastors had their answers to these questions, they quietly went back to their pulpits and desks and began teaching the next generation. So it's easy to see how people like Holmes and Washburn had reason to feel like this wasn't the most representative process there were other opinions in the room of how to answer these questions that never got invited to the table. Holmes and Washburn were obnoxious fools at times. Well, Holmes was an obnoxious fool at times. Washburn was almost always an obnoxious fool. There was no Christian reason to break into a vault or write some of the nasty things they were about to write. It's easy to blame them, and I do, don't worry. But we can also acknowledge that the 1919 Bible Conference was a political blunder. The adults can talk, that's fine, but there needs to be a family meeting afterwards when the decision the adults are talking about concerns the entire family. When people who have a stake in something don't also have a voice in something, they're usually going to rebel against those in power. So why did Daniels keep the discussion between 60 people? Why did he then seal up the record of the discussion so no one would be able to read it? Was this really a conspiracy by church leaders to undermine Ellen White and drive Adventists closer to evangelical Christianity? The truth is that Daniels kept the conference private because he wanted the space where people could have an honest and free conversation with each other. 
And if you don't understand the value of that, I guarantee you that your pastor, your school teachers, and your conference administrators absolutely do understand the value of that. Church employees seldom feel free to speak their mind in public. If you walk around shooting off your opinion, you won't get very far. There will be some washburn in the pews who will crucify you. Either that or you'll be elected president of the United States. But I promise you that anyone who has been in church service for more than a few years can share story after story after story after story with you about times they've been bludgeoned by some well-meaning church member who didn't like their opinion. You learn to speak diplomatically in order to survive. That may sound dramatic, but that's the truth. The irony of this situation is that if you ask Daniels, he'd probably tell you that people like Holmes and Washburn had helped create such a toxic environment in the church, had helped create such an atmosphere of conspiracy and suspicion that it was impossible to have the conversation publicly anyway. I should add that this wasn't just Daniels' decision. I mean, I talk about Washburn and Daniels here, but please understand this was bigger than Washburn and Daniels. There were plenty of people on both sides. It wasn't just Washburn and Daniels doing all the stuff. It wasn't just Daniels making these decisions about the conference, okay? It was a committee that planned this. It was a committee that decided to keep the record, the transcript of the conference private. But I just want to keep the story moving. So please just understand I give these guys more credit than they deserve. Anyways, every delegate who went to the 1919 Bible Conference knew that the Adventist public was going to want to know what was discussed. William Worth, a Bible teacher about to head off to get a master's degree at Berkeley, noted that his students had approached him before the conference even began and tried to get him to promise them that he would tell them all about the conference when he got back. He even got letters in the mail from people wanting the same thing. He concluded, quote, I am not going to tell them everything about it. I am going to ask the Lord to give me wisdom because I do not think they are ready. I doubt the wisdom of letting immature minds get a hold of this, end quote. And by this, he meant the transcript of the conference. A union president bluntly admitted that, quote, if we publish this in pamphlet form, it will be used against us, end quote. A general conference secretary said, quote, I think that the publishing of this matter would sow seeds of division and discord. I am not in favor of sending out anything, end quote. Then Daniels weighed in at the end of the discussion by saying, quote, I sometimes think it would be just as well to lock this manuscript up in a vault, end quote. And just like that, the genie hiding in a teacup granted his wish. Well, instead of a genie, I mean there was a committee there that granted him his wish, but you get the point. It was an impossible position to be in. I mean, those attending the conference knew that if the transcript of what they had said got out, it would shake the church. Not because they were involved in some conspiracy or they were all heretics, but because they didn't believe many of the church members were mature enough to handle it. Is that a bit of elitist snobbery? I'll let you decide. Many of those lay people believed like Holmes and Washburn, that the King James was the only true English version, for instance. They also believed that every word Ellen White published was inspired by God. And if you're in that camp, either of those camps, both of those camps, it's very difficult to read the discussions at the 1919 Bible Conference and see anything other than a bunch of abject heretics 
and traitors on the part of your leaders. The gap between the church's leaders and lay people was wide. The leaders knew it. The lay people suspected it. They knew they would be misunderstood and considered traitors to the faith. They knew it would cause a huge fight in the church. They also knew that not releasing the transcripts would lead to them being misunderstood and considered traitors to the faith. The shepherds were scared of the sheep. They knew all of this going into the 1919 Bible Conference, and yet they thought the discussion they were about to have was worth it. And I can't wait to talk about it with you next time. So I've been asked by our sponsors to give a shout-out to a new podcast in town. But I'm also doing this because I want to. It's a brand new show, and so that means it's going to need some of your love and attention because we Adventist podcasters and podcast listeners need to stick together and support each other. Now, this new podcast is called Advent Next, Life and Faith Discussions for the Next Generation. And it's doing something that no Adventist podcast is currently doing. It is bringing Ph.D. professionals and other experts on as guests to discuss important sometimes hot topics that are going around in the church. The first episode was on women's ordination, which if you've been paying attention to Adventism the past, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years, is kind of a thing that people are discussing. And they had Dr. John Reeve on, who is a friend and professor of church history at Andrews University there at the Theological Seminary. So, you can access the Advent Next podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify, or you can watch the full episodes on YouTube, which you should definitely do because they have a wicked cool set. It is really good with a high production value, so be sure to like and subscribe to their videos on whatever platform suits you. So, check them out, adventnext.com. It is a great thing to listen to while you're waiting every month for me to get my act together and release more episodes. So, that's it, and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. 
that's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.